Welcome. I'm glad you're here this morning. Uh, if you don't know, my name is Sean. I am one of the pastors here, and uh, we are working through a series on the book of Hebrews. So if you have a Bible and you want to go to Hebrews, that'd be great. If not, I'm going to have everything that's relevant right up here on the screen. And I would love to say, if you haven't gone through Rooted, you should check it out. Uh, easiest way to do that is to text the word Monmouth to 97,000, and there's a menu, and one of them's Rooted, and you can take a look at uh, all kinds of information about Rooted there. Uh, I think you'll be really glad that you, uh, that you did. Um, also, uh, up here leading worship for us this morning uh, was Casey, and I don't know, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how many of you know her really well, but you've probably seen her up on stage quite a bit over the last couple months, and, and I did. I just wanted to point her out, and I just wanted to, uh, if we could all just take a moment and tell her thank you with a little round of applause for her. Um, it, is, it is a thing to be up on stage in front of people. It's a thing on top of that to be up on stage singing in front of people, and it's a whole nother thing to do that all alone without anybody else up on the stage with you, right? And, uh, and we're so grateful for, for her and, uh, and all that she's been to our church over the last couple months. So if you see her in the lobby, uh, if you're online, you can, you can message her on Facebook. Or you can find her on Facebook or something, but if you're, you, you, know, you can like give her a high five or handshake. I, I don't know if any of you are close enough yet with her to hug her. That might just be awkward and a little bit of, but you can high five her. Um, um, and that would be good. Hey, um, we are in Hebrews. So let me just read to you the verse we're going to look at. And we're actually, we're, we're, we're in week three of Hebrews. We're going to look at half of a verse. And if I'm being real honest, we're going to look at three words. So here it is, okay? Um, Hebrews 1, verse 2. It says this. In these last days, God, it's supposed to say right there, has spoken to us in his Son, in these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. I promised you uh, the last couple weeks that we would talk about just this phrase right here. And, and here's why. Um, over the last uh, 30, um, actually, it's probably been long enough. I, I saw a meme uh, just this week that said, you know, when you say 30 years ago, you think of like the 70s, right? And 30 years ago was 1993. So... So probably like the last 50 years, right, uh, as Americans, we've had this uh, maybe unhealthy obsession with end time stuff. Um, we, we have been, there's been books and books and books and books written, all culminated, like the, 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 the pinnacle of the pop culture on end times was, uh, was left behind, right? Remember? Left Behind book, and then it was succeeded by 17 other volumes of Left Behind books, right? Um, I think, here, I'm going to give this to you right out the front, and then we're going to talk, and we're going to see if, if maybe you will agree, at least in part with me, by the end. I think that part of our obsession with kind of end time stuff, like, like the Bible talks about end times, there's, there's end time stuff in the Bible, but I think sometimes we overly obsess about it because we undervalue the cosmic impact of what happened in the cross and resurrection. We see, like we're going to look at today, we see these magnificent, incredible, powerful, amazing claims in scripture. And, and we see declarations about what's gonna, what God's going to do. In the end, God's going to do this. And in the end, God's going to do this. And we look at the cross and the resurrection, we go, well, I mean, that was cool. <laughs> like, you rose from the dead. But there must be something bigger. 
And I want you to notice, right, the writer of Hebrews, we don't know a lot about the writer of Hebrews. We don't know a lot about the audience he's writing to. But what we know is that he was a Hebrew, and he's writing to a bunch of Hebrews. Or he was a Jew, and he's writing to a bunch of Jews. Jews. Thank you. And we're going to get there, right? He was a Jew writing to a bunch of Jews. And, and he says this, look at this. This is the opening of the book of Hebrews. Here's a claim he makes. This is really important. Look at what he says. In these last days. In these last days. There's something going on in the world that the writer of the book of Hebrews believes that we today, even 2,000 years later, are living in the last days. And so if you're going to be a good Bible student, if you're going to be a good Bible scholar, you have to ask the question, right? Um, he, he says these last days, and, and we could, as 21st century Americans, we could read into us, into it, what we think it means the last days, right? But if we're going to be a good Bible student, we have to ask the question, what would a Jew in the first century think of the last days, what would, what would a, a, a Jew writing to a bunch of other Jews, what would they hear, what would they imagine if they heard the phrase, in these last days? As you read throughout the Jewish scriptures, as you read throughout the Old Testament, this phrase comes up, the last days. And, and it talks about a lot of different places. It talks about Isaiah 2 is a, is a place that it talks about it. Daniel talks a lot about it. Jeremiah talks about it. But today I want to look at one verse um, in particular in Micah, Micah 4. I know you were just reading this morning in Micah, so you have it like uh, uh, marked in your Bible. But it, uh, Micah 4, Micah 4, it's this little book of prophecy. And, and look, look at what it says. This is part of the imagination of the first century Jews. When the writer of Hebrews says, in these last days, this was an image that they knew what he was talking about. As Jews, writing to a bunch of Jews, they knew what it meant to be in these last days. And this is what Micah says about these that we live in now, these last days. He says this, in the last days, right? That's basically the same phrase. The last days is the same thing, but the as opposed to these. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains, it will be exalted, or some translation will say, it'll be raised up. Right? It's same, obviously, same, same idea, same thrust. It'll be raised up above the hills, and peoples will stream to it. Now, a lot of times when um, we're looking at end time stuff, or even this in the Old Testament, kind of prophecy of last, time, last days kind of stuff, um, it's, it's this poetic language, and it's, and it's big, and it's, uh, it's crazy. I mean, honestly, if you think about these words in, in just like a literal sense, they don't make a lot of sense, right? I mean, just look at the image that he's painting to begin with, right? He says that um, the, 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 um, the mountain of the Lord... Right, that the temple is on the mountain of the Lord, and it'll be raised above all the other hills. Right? So are we supposed to think that like there's gonna come a day where all of a sudden there's a temple sitting on top of a hill, and then all of a sudden, like we're gonna be just looking at the temple on top of the hill, and then it's just gonna go and it's gonna be taller than Mount Everest? No, no, he's he's painting a picture for us. He's, tr he's trying to give us a message, an image that carries weight and significance. And, and then there's this right here. It says this, the peoples will stream to it. Here's the interesting thing about uh, the Hebrew language. 
The Hebrew language is weird. Like, I don't know if you know this, if you've ever studied the Hebrew language. It is weird. Um, the Hebrew language was a predominantly oral language, so it, for a long time, the Hebrew language didn't have vowel markings. It didn't have vowels. They would say vowels, right? Like, they, they, they would speak vowels, but they wouldn't write them in the words. And then later they put, you know, if you look at Hebrew, they have, like, dots and these T symbols and lines and all this kind of stuff to, to, to make the vowels. Um, the other thing the Hebrew language doesn't have is it doesn't have traditional verbs. Like, we think of... A verb, like if I was to tell you, like if we sing a song and then I say, you can take a seat, right? Or, or you should sit, right? We're, we're, we're using verbs in that sense, right? In the Hebrew language, it doesn't have the same use of verbs. The Hebrew language only has nouns. And so to do an action, they put this marking on it and you, you do the noun. So here's the example, okay? The Hebrew language doesn't have the word sit, it has the word chair as an action. You see it? You see the image? Right? You, you don't sit. It doesn't, in the Hebrew language, it doesn't, literally, it doesn't have a word that says sit. I sat at the table, or will you sit? It says, will you chair? Right? That makes sense. Right? That's like a pretty logical thing. Right? So here, look at this right here, this word right here. And the people will stream to it. Hebrew language doesn't have a good word for this. This is actually the verb form of the word river. The people will river to it. Now, here's the weird thing, right? Do you remember what he just said about the, the mountain and the hill? It's lifted. It's exalted above all the others. And so the, the image that Micah wants us to see is he's saying this thing about there are these last days that are coming for us, the right of Hebrews say, we live in these last days and, and this mountain will be exalted and then like a river, people will flow like a river, but they're gonna flow up the mountain, right? This is like a, this is like kind of a weird picture he's painting. Unless you understand, again, another part about how the Jewish people saw the world, particularly how they saw creation. If you know from the story of Genesis, it talks about that God formed everything and, and, and Eden, and in Eden there was a garden, right? The garden is inside of Eden. It's not the garden that is Eden. The garden is inside of Eden. And in the middle of the garden is the, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, Jewish thinking of the time was that uh, because of some nuanced statements in the book of Genesis and then just their lived experience that um, Eden and the garden was actually on top of a mountain, right? Because um, where, did, where did Moses go to get the law? He went up on a mountain, right? Every time Elijah would go to be with God, he would go up on a mountain. There's a big deal made of the fact that Jerusalem is up on a mountain. They would call it a mountain. We call it a hill, right? Uh, up on a mountain, right? And so this place of God was up on a mountain. And then you remember... A river flowed out of Eden, and it broke up into multiple rivers. So Micah's actually painting us a picture of Eden restored. He's painting us a picture that should make us think of the original creation, of the mountain, of the Garden of Eden, of the river streaming, but instead of life streaming out, God's flipped everything on its head, and, and now people of all the nations are streaming to it. What Micah wants us to see, what we see over and over again in Old Testament prophecy about the last days, is that we live in a busted world. 
The things have gone crazy. That since the very beginning of creation, like God made everything good and it was right. And then Adam and Eve rebelled and things have just been chaos since then. And every single place in the world that you go, things are chaos and busted because people, busted people are there. But there was this constant hope that there will be one day, there'll be one day, where God will restore things the way that they were supposed to be and God will be so magnificent and so good and so incredible that like rivers that go uphill, people will stream back to him. Now look at what it says, um, the next verse in Micah uh, 4, it says this, many nations will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, which is another name for Jerusalem. The word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we know from looking at Hebrews and looking at New Testament um, writers, who, who, who is the word? The word is a person, according to our faith. The word is Jesus. Now Micah didn't know that. But it's God speaking through him. God's saying, look, look, the word of the Lord, what we would say is Jesus is going to come out of Jerusalem, right? This is where his death and resurrection occurred, that life and goodness is going to come out. But here, here's what I love about this. This is what's so profound and so important and so like shocking to an ancient culture. Look at what it says. Many nations, the nations will come streaming like a river going upstream to this magnificent, good, glorious God. The Jewish hope of the last days was this moment when God would be reestablished in his rightful place as supreme and superior over everything and that all the nations would chase after him and that God would be so gracious as to come after his people. So if the writer of Hebrews says like all this magnificent, this mount's going to go up and streams of people like rivers going uphill, all this stuff and, and the word of the Lord is going to go out... If he says that we live in these last days, when did the writer of Hebrews imagine that this all had happened? Well, there's a, a Jewish festival. We call it Pentecost. Um, uh, one of the words that they would, was the, the Feast of Weeks, right? And they would celebrate the first wheat harvest. But it was also a celebration of the day that the word of the Lord, the law, the Torah, came to the people. And after Jesus died and rose from the dead, this miraculous and amazing thing happens in Jerusalem. The disciples are all there. They're hiding in an upper room, and, and God shows up mighty and powerful. God shows up in miraculous, amazing way, not with just with the 11 disciples that are there, but with tons of people, right? There's people all over the place, and, and it's, it's just nuts. It's bonkers. The city's already crammed, and then God, in this powerful, amazing in this thing that seems from Acts 2 to be so powerful that people could hear it going on from a distance away. They come to gather and hear, and, and, and Peter begins to explain to them what they're experiencing in this amazing, powerful move of God where the Spirit of God descends on all these people. He tries to explain to them by quoting from Joel. Now, Joel says this. Um, this is how Acts 2... Oh, wrong button. Here's how Acts 2 tells us, he's quoting from Joel, and this is what Peter says. He says this, in the last days, right, there's our, there's our phrase again, that we live in these last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on 
people. I don't know if you know this. Um, we, we love John 3.16. Historically, as Christians, been a big fan of it. Okay? It's a great verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. And so that whosoever would believe in him might not perish but have everlasting life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. When we hear that verse, the thing that seems shocking and amazing to us is the demonstration of God's love in giving his son. For God so loved the world, he gave his son for you, right? And that's good, and that's right, and that's true. But if you were a first century Jew, you know what was shocking about it? For God so loved the world. Because a first century Jew would have no problem saying, for God so loved me, for God so loved my nation, for God so loved my people. We are his treasured possession. We are a beloved people. We are his bride. We are his. We are beautiful and uniquely his. But in this shocking um, demonstration of the extravagance of God's love, John says, for God so loved the whole world. Look at this. God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. The word here is the word ethnos, which is where we get the word ethnicity. I will pour out my spirit on all the nations. Remember Micah 4? All the nations will come like streams upriver. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and, and signs on earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. This is, this is incredibly intense language, isn't it? Right? Not only is the spirit going to, but, but we've got this like blood and fire thing going. And then look at this, look at this. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. See, this is just a perfect example of how often we underestimate the cosmic significance of what Jesus did in his death and resurrection on the cross. Because for many of us, our inclination, if we read this, the sun will be turned to darkness, a moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. For many of us, we're going to think of... Like the very end, the consummation of all things, the, the time Jesus comes back a second time. But if you remember when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? It went dark. The sun was blotted out. What Joel's prophesying in this moment is this great and glorious cosmic world changing day moment. As in the moment when Jesus breathes his last and dies and on the third day, he raises. That it shook the foundations of the world. Who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, there's this really cool thing in the story of Acts. Like, like I said, this, this story in the book of Acts is is just crazy. Like there, there's, not, there's not a good way to describe. Um, there's probably not enough language if you were there to try and articulate like how amazing and crazy it was. All these people speaking different languages, speaking in tongues, and everyone's hearing in different languages. Uh, it was so crazy that um, people began to criticize and they're like, oh, they're just drunk, right? They're all, they're all just drunk off their rocker, right? And, and Peter's response is like, come on, it's not even noon yet, right? Like, 
Like, you know us. It's not even noon yet, right? It's just this crazy thing. But there's this little detail in the story in the book of Acts that you wouldn't notice unless you'd been reading Jeremiah recently. And I love it. And I think it sums up the, the power and the significance and what we should be getting out of this story, right? Um, Jeremiah 49, 39, it says this, but it will come about in the last days that I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. You don't look as shocked as I thought you would. Isn't that awesome? You're like, Sean, I don't know who the Elamites are and I really don't care. I got enough things on my mind to think about. Elam, who, cool. Like another Bible people, there are other people live somewhere. That's awesome, right? But look, in Jeremiah, this is the word that God speaks through Jeremiah, that I will restore the fortunes of Elam, the people we call the Elamites, okay? Now look at this. Look at this, Acts 2, okay? Um, this is right before Peter quotes Joel, right? And, he's, and, he's, and they're explaining what's going on in the moment. It says this, they were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, why? Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, that's not just to say like they spoke a certain language. That's, that's to say like, um, I mean, they might as well just said, why aren't all these people stupid, right? It wasn't a compliment. Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Now look at this. Here we go. You ready? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites. And residents of Mesopotamia, and then I put this three dots in, there's two more verses of just people of all over the world that are listed in this thing, and so I spared us that whole list. We hear them speaking in our own tongues of the mighty deeds of God, and, all, and they all continued in amazement and great perplexity. I think this is a bit of an understatement. Saying to one another, what does this mean? What does it mean? What does it mean that, that God said in Jeremiah, hundreds of years before, God says, I'm going to restore the fortunes of, of Elam. And in the moment when, when God's spirit explodes out into creation, in this, in this history-changing moment we call Pentecost, when God chases after all of creation from every tongue and every tribe and every nation, every ethnos, come to draw towards him, it's no coincidence that listed in the amongst, amongst the group are the Elamites. What does this mean? What does it mean? It means that we live in this incredibly beautiful, amazing era of human history where God is after every nation. God is after every person. God is after every soul. He himself left heaven to come after us. We see, we, we, we have this beautiful opportunity living today in the 21st century. We have this awesome, <coughs> awesome opportunity to see that God's love is not held back by borders, by politics, by our incompetence. Did you know that you can read stories? There are places where there are closed nations and Christians cannot go there. And yet God is not held back. God is in so, loves those people so much that he appears to them in visions and he appears to them in dreams because he's after all people. 
even as uh, one woman in our church met Jesus through Netflix, through watching on Netflix. We live in a time and a space and a day where God is demonstrating the extravagance of his love that he is chasing after all the nations, after every single, which means, what does this mean? What does this mean? It means for you and for me that there is nothing, not even streams that have to go uphill that will stop God from coming after you. It means that we live in a time and a place where God has demonstrated the fullness of his love, the extravagance of his love, even the recklessness of his love, that he gave his son in our place. And that he's after you and he's after your heart and he's after the nations so that every people might draw, be drawn to him and his life and his goodness. There's one last thing that I want to show you today that I think is kind of cool about this passage. Um, There are things in um, culture, in the way we see the world, that if you haven't spent a lot of time in multiple cultures, you just assume are like the self-evident logical way of seeing things, right? Um, Like, for example, okay, um, when does the day start? Not a trick question. When's the day start? Thank you, executive pastor. In the morning, right? Your day starts in the morning. That's when your day starts, right? And it seems self-evident to us because the sun rises and it's a new day. And we celebrate a new day, right? A new day. And it seems self-evident to us that obviously the way of the day starting is that it starts with the sunrise, But in Jewish culture, in a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures, the the day actually started in darkness because it reflected the order of creation, that, 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 that the created order existed in darkness and chaos, and God formed it and made it, and then he spoke light into existence, right? It seems self evident to us, but when you're in different cultures, you see things differently. So here's another question I have for you Um, Is the future in front of you or behind you? It's not a trick question future in front of you or behind you? It's in front of you, right? right? And then that's why we post these like um, cliche memes, right? That say, there's a reason your windshield is bigger than your review mirror, right? Keep your eyes forward, right? The, the... And it makes sense. It seems self-evident to us, right? It seems the logical way because if, I, if I'm going forward into the future, I'm, it's in front of me, right? Um, and the past is behind us. The past is behind, and leave it in the past. Leave it behind you. Here's the, here's the interesting thing. In, um, in Jewish culture, in Semitic cultures, uh, the future is behind you, and the past is in front of you. Here's why. Here's the reasoning. Makes sense. Here's the reasoning, okay? The future, the past is in front of you because you can see the past, Right? You can look back and you can say, oh, this is how God moved. This is what God did. And so in the past, the past, when it uses the word in the past, it's actually using the word grouping um, in the Hebrew language that's in front of you. And when it uses this word in, that we see in, the, in Hebrews um, in the past, in the last days, it's actually part of the word group that means behind because the future stood behind you because the future was unknowable. Isn't that kind of a cool way to think about time, right? 
You can see things that happened in the past. You can look at them. You can evaluate them. You can break them down. You can say, God's been faithful every single time. And so I know that God's been faithful here and God's been faithful here. And so the things of the past are in front of us, but the things of the future are behind us because we can't see them. We can't know them. The writer in the book of Hebrews, he says, in these behind us days, in these days that are unknowable, in these days where we can't see into the darkness, God has spoken to us through his son. In these days of uncertainty, and maybe, maybe that's what you need to hear today. Maybe you came in today with just a load of uncertainty. Uncertainty around your finances, around a career, around relationships, around family dynamics. You come in with a load of uncertainty. None of us, none of us knows what this afternoon's even going to hold. <laughs> None of us knows what tomorrow's going to hold or a week or a month. We walk into a future, every single one of us, every single day that is dark, that it's like behind us, it's unknowable. But remember what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, in these unknowable, behind us, dark days, God has spoken to us in his son. Do you remember, um, you may not know the first reference, but it's John 8, uh, Jesus speaks and he says this. He says, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of light. We don't know a lot about the people that the writer of Hebrews was writing to, but we know that they were a distressed people. They were people that were aching and hurting and broken and unsure about the future and unsure about their faith and unsure about whether they wanted to continue this journey any longer. And he opens up the book saying this. There are days in front of you that are unknowable, that are dark and hard. There are rooms that God's going to ask you to walk into tomorrow that just look dark, that look like you can't figure out where to put your feet. But God's spoken to us in his son who is the light of the world. And each one of us has the opportunity to walk by the light of Jesus into an unknown future that our hope and our confidence doesn't come in our assurance of what tomorrow looks like or our ability to control what tomorrow looks like. The last days, the end days, the uncertain days of tomorrow. But then instead, that God has given us this great gift of his son, that we can walk with him lighting the foot of our path into an unknown future. The dark rooms he's asking you to walk into tomorrow or next month or next year, he's already there lighting up the room waiting for you. So today, I pray, I hope, I hope that the darkness that you see in front of us, the uncertainty, the brokenness, the pain, the confusion you see in front of you, that you might know that Jesus, the God who makes rivers run up hills, is after you because he wants to walk with you and bring light into the darkest places of your life.